listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please, your Bibles, and turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 and verse number 7. And they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josedach, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forth forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good and his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the, law, of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen that first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. God is at work. God is at work in human history, and God is at work in the heart of a king named Cyrus of old. And as God works in Cyrus's heart, so Cyrus brings about the decree to bring the people back to their land. But God is not only working in Cyrus to bring that decree, he's also working in the hearts of people, making them willing to do the will of God. A willingness to do the will of God, though that is not easy. They'd settled themselves and established houses and fields in, in Babylon, but now God was instructing them through Cyrus to go back and to rebuild the temple. That sets a scene for the verses before us today, because now the work commences Verse number 7 gives the details leading to verse number 8 of the commencement of the temple building and the establishment of the foundations. Now, when we think of this passage, we've got to come back to first principles. Again, the history itself is interesting, but we should ask ourselves the fundamental question, what is the temple in Old Covenant Israel? What is the significance of the temple to the people of God? Now, of course, the temple was the idea given by God, of course, uh, to David and then built by Solomon 
And it was a permanent replacement, the tabernacle, that God instituted the people in the wilderness. And thus it was a place where God manifested himself. In Solomon's own words, he says, I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. The temple becomes a place of God's special presence. And there God met the people of God above the mercy seat. Atonement having been made, blood sprinkled upon them in the mercy seat, God came down. He came down in the days of Solomon, the, in the pillar of the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. God manifesting himself and being present with his people. All of these things being types and shadows of the gospel. These things were uh, ends to themselves for the people of God in one sense. There they heard the word of God. There they worshipped God. But that was not all that God had intended in the temple institution. It was a shadow giving us types and shadows pointing us to the ultimate, namely Christ himself, the great temple of God. John 1 makes it clear that Christ came down and dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He templed among us in that sense as he came as the incarnate son of God. And so the shadows show us the worship of God and the word of God being brought to the people of God through the work of Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Through Christ's work, God's people meet with God. They commune with God. They worship God and they hear his word all through the work of Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting when you connect the types and the shadows of the old into the new, it is fitting that in the new covenant, the local church is likened to the temple. If the temple is showing us how God meets with people, well, then how does God meet with people in the new covenant? He does so in his gathered church. Not only we meet with God privately and personally, but there is a significance of the people of God coming together to gather together and there to meet the Lord. And you think of the words and you turn across to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is, of course, the passage I'm considering when I think about this matter of the church being pictured or described as a temple of God. You have there in the verse number 17, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And again, in the context, the warning is again of abusing and destroying the work of God in the local church. That individuals must be careful how they build upon the foundation that is Christ. Christ is the foundation of the New Testament temple, which is the local church. The church in these various ways. And so you have a cross in verse number 9. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, going back to the, uh, the horticultural, the agricultural image in the previous verses. But also verse 9, ye are God's building and every man must take heed how he buildeth thereon verse number 10 no other foundation than christ jesus all of this language speaking about a building that building then defined in verse 17 in terms of the temple and i think this shows us why the principles of building this post-exilic temple can be clear carefully applied to the building of the new testament church if God is going to have these 
Two concepts, Old and New Testament, then I believe with all of my heart, he's going to be very careful in revealing the principles of building in the Old Testament shadows. That we would learn from these things, that we not misapply the word, but be careful in properly discerning the principles in the Old Testament and then applying them into the New. And so that's what I think we can do. We can study the history here. We can study the, uh, the story of this uh, rebuilding effort. And we can use that to teach ourselves lessons regarding our own work as those engaged in the building of a New Testament church for the glory of Christ Jesus. And so tonight, as we look at these verses together, there are three things I want to leave uh, with you. And the first one is, is very obvious. When it comes to building in the work of God, there is the need for resources Resources are required. And in these verses, there are two areas in which God has appointed and used these resources. There is the need for materials, verse number 7. And there is the need for manpower, verses 8 and following. The need for resources. Now when it comes to these things, I want you to note first of all, that the cedar that was required for the building effort came from Lebanon. You have that there, verse number seven. They give money, the people of God, those who are gathering to build the, the foundations of the temple. They give this money to the masons, the carpenters, but they also give money unto the Sidonians and to those of Tower Tyre in order that they would bring cedar from Lebanon. And the cedar from Lebanon would come also from the sea of Joppa. Now, if you were an Old Testament reader reading Ezra, you would immediately find yourself remembering the past. You would find yourself going back to the times of Solomon and Hiram of Tyre and the provision uh, that was arranged between Solomon and that king that the cedar of Lebanon would come for the building of the temple of God. There are direct parallels. First Kings 5 and Second Chronicles highlight the parallels between this building program and that of Solomon. It's also worth noting that when you get towards uh, later on in this chapter and they sing of the song in verse number 11, they sing the very same song that they sang in Second Chronicles chapter 5. The reader is meant to see continuity here. It's important for us to see the continuity between Solomon's temple and this new build. This is a new build, but it's in the context of the same covenant of grace it's one of the clues that god gives us to see that he does not deal with people in separate dispensations but deals with his people in a continuous covenant of grace we are meant to see continuity in god's dealings with men now the new testament church is not a physical building but the apostles go to great lengths to prove this ongoing continuity We've noticed already in Romans chapter 11 in recent weeks the continuity of the olive tree. That we as Gentiles are wild branches but not established as a second new olive tree but rather engrafted into the original olive tree the spiritual promises made by God to Israel. Continuity. It's not that God starts a whole new thing in the New Testament but rather in the New Testament there is the outworking of God's promises not only now to Jewish believers, but also to Gentiles. But it's all again in the spirit of continuity. 
Even take the language of First Peter. Turn across to First Peter chapter 2, where again Peter deals with this issue of, of continuity, but also in terms of a building of God's. It's First Peter chapter 2, verse number 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up and spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now again, you'll, you'll see uh, later on that the issue of the cornerstone is raised in verse number 6. The cornerstone, that is Christ Jesus. The cornerstone of the building, the temple of God. Christ is the cornerstone. Everything takes its form and strength from Christ Jesus. But we as believers, we are lively stones. Now, Peter is clear. We are not to look for a new physical building of a temple. That's not what we're looking for. We're seeing a spiritual building now, living stones, those born again in the Spirit of God, being built up together as a spiritual house. But the continuity is clear. It is a priesthood offering up sacrifices. Not animals, but lives. Living sacrifice according to the Apostle Paul. So they are saved. They're part of the temple. It's all metaphorical language. But Peter is deliberately pointing out just the continuity of the old into the new. And we should delight in this. We are building upon Christ Jesus. But we are adding new layers of stone upon those laid in former days. And what a security it is. Looking back through the annals of history, we see the faithfulness of God. And therefore we have the assurance that God will be faithful in our generation. Faithful in his covenant promises. And so we're seeing in these materials this emphasis on continuity. We should also note though, that although the church is not physical, resources are still required. Yeah, we, we've drawn from the physical here to the spiritual but that is not to deny the need for ongoing physical resources. Well, there is the need for financial resource. The work of God, global missions, cannot continue without financial resources. It's part and parcel of how God has organized things in all, in all phases of, of redemptive history. There are those who provide the financial clout for the work of God to continue. Still the case. But of course, beyond that, there is the profound need for manpower. And the concept of builders or laborers is used very consistently in the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter 3, we get that idea of laboring and building and taking, key how, taking care how we build. We've got the idea of being laborers together with God. Although uh, it's a different picture of the harvest, there is a need for God to send forth laborers. Those who are called of God and equipped by God. There is the need for God to raise up men to do the work. It's a vital part of the ongoing building of the New Testament temple of God. So I say to you all, provide as God has given you the ability. Be zealous in doing what you can for the furtherance of the gospel by providing the financial means you can according to God's grace. But beyond that, be earnest in prayer for God to provide the necessary manpower, the resources of God to send forth laborers. Be earnest in prayer for these things. God tells us to do so. We must do so. But if I can put this very simply, be prepared to get your own hands dirty. Don't leave the building work to others. 
You may have a particular role and a a small role in some corner of the foundation work of God. But by God's grace, you can get your hands dirty in the work of God. And if God equips you and puts you into a role to serve him, make sure you do this with all of your heart, all of your soul, mind and strength. God is pleased to privilege us to be used of him for the building of the temple of God. And so there is undoubtedly this necessity. It's a, a recognition of a need for resources. But the second thing in this building work is that there does come a time for rejoicing. We see that they, they get on the, the work and the building continues. Verse number 10, having detailed the men involved in the work and the Levites and their age and all of these things. You have verse number 10. And when the builders laid the foundation, the temple of the Lord, they get the priests together, they organize things, and they begin to praise the Lord. Verse number 10. After the ordinance of David, king of Israel, they come to worship God. Worship here is, of course, arising out of a recognition. A recognition, first of all, that this is all of God's grace. Look what it says in verse 11. And they sang together by course in praising, and note the language, and giving thanks unto the Lord. Cyrus has been involved. He's provided resources, financial resources, They've, they, they've been given stuff as they left Babylon, many resources. They themselves have given out of their own generosity. And yet when it comes to contemplating the work of God, there is a recognition, it's all of God. The giving thanks is a fresh recognition that this all comes in the good pleasure of God and by his grace. They see that what has occurred has only occurred because, as I said at the beginning, God was at work. And so they recognize that in thanksgiving. They also, of course, recognize that this is a manifestation of God's faithfulness. And I don't think it's insignificant that they emphasize the fact that they praise God after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. If you like, they're going back to the foundations. They're going back to first principles. The one whose idea it was to build a temple is the one who set in place, if you like, the, the ongoing worship of God in the temple ordinances. So according to his word, which of course is the word of God, they then got engaged themselves in this proper praise. And they sing a refrain from the Psalms. You have it there, verse number 11. They sang together because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Now that refrain occurs in several psalms, but of course especially in Psalm 136. His mercy endureth forever. And what they're recognizing here is that God's chesed, that's what the word here is in verse number 11, his mercy, his covenantal goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy endures. They are acknowledging God's faithfulness here. They've been in Babylon. All seemed lost. But God had given a word through Jeremiah and God's word is sure and God is faithful in keeping his promises. Now there is one major difference between what happens here in the joy of Ezra chapter 3 and the joy at the Conclusion of Solomon's temple. Here in Ezra chapter 3, they are singing praise 
at the foundation of the temple being built. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, the singing is at the completion. Now, I don't think it's a case that one's right and one's wrong. It's not that they're premature here in Ezra 3 or too slow in Second Chronicles chapter 5. That's not the point. But Ezra is showing us here the appropriate response of joy in considering God's work, though that work is incomplete. Is this again revealed of God? Given what they've come through and the restoration they have to their land, it is proper and fitting for them to recognize God's work, even though the work is incomplete. You see, it is difficult to pray for the church. We are here to pray, and we are longing and praying for God's future building. We're looking to see God doing something tomorrow. That's what we're praying for. And that spirit of prayer is right and proper. But sometimes the consequence of such a spirit of prayer is that we don't see what God has done and is doing. We spend our time considering what God should do in the future and what we want God to do in the future, but we fail to see what God has already done. And there is a time to reflect and rejoice. And I must do that as a pastor. I have to take time each and every week to think about what God has already done in the Word of God here. To consider what God has done in your lives, saving you, bringing you into the place of worship here and keeping you in his grace. God has done great things among us, whereof we are glad. And if we miss that, we will forget to give thanks to God for what he's done already. And I understand and I share the burden for God to do great things in our families and in this community, but let us not have such a burden that we forget what God has already done. We must give thanks for the church, even though it is incomplete. We can still acknowledge and give thanks to God for his faithfulness and his covenantal goodness. Which leads to the third thing, and that is the impact of remembering. When you get to verse 12 and 13, you see that there is a mixture now of emotions. There are the older people who remember the first temple, and some of them are able to shout for joy, and others find themselves in tears. Now, we know, we know the cause of the response was remembering the past. It says that so very, very clearly. There were those ancient men that had seen that first house. When they laid the foundation, they wept with a loud voice. They are remembering the past. And we have the words in Haggai chapter 2, where it says about this new temple, is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? And again, there are various ideas as to why the ancient men would weep at the sight of this new temple. Some say it's through the size. It's not going to be as large as Solomon's. Well, that may be true when you think of the courts. But actually, the temple itself at this point is larger than Solomon's temple. You see that in chapter 6 of Ezra. Others suggest maybe it's a splendor. Maybe it's not going to be as majestic as Solomon's temple was, but yet... There's a lot of money available for the work of God in this temple. So there are elements of truth regarding size and splendor. But it's also the matter that only the foundation has been laid at this point. 
But I think beyond that, there is a spiritual aspect. There is no Ark of the Covenant. And the glory of the first temple was ultimately the presence of God. And when you get to the completion of the temple in Ezra chapter 6, there is no glory descending. There's no Ark of the Covenant. Therefore, there is no ground whereby the Shekinah glory of God would come down into the temple. The glory of this temple will wait until Christ will stand in this temple. This temple will not be what the first temple was because this temple awaits Christ's coming. Now, I don't know that the men recognize all of those things. Did they look ahead towards the come? I don't know that's for certain, but I do know they understood that this temple was not what the first was. And so whilst they rejoice at what God is doing, there is a recognition that this is not the fullness of God's blessings. They await Christ, they await the consummation of all that is yet to come. Evaluating God's work will always bring a mixture of joy and sorrow. That's the nature of considering the work of God. And we must think about the past. We must reflect upon past glories, but be very careful how those reflections move our souls. Again, God has done great things in our own denomination in the past. You go back beyond that to the age of the awakenings and beyond that to the Reformation, we can look back and we can say God has done great things and we can reflect upon past glories. And we can see our own state and a perception of a need for revival. But we can become discontent at God's present work. We can be blind to what God is doing right now. And we can reflect upon past glories and be envious and Stephen to a degree, holy envy. And yet not rejoice in God's power and God's grace. It's just important to think carefully about the past. But to see God's present work today, we're living in today. We've got to look at today's work and see God's present work, even though we see broken walls and rubble all around us. This is still the work of God. This local church is the handiwork of God. God is at work among us. And we must acknowledge that and rejoice in that and delight in all that God is doing for his name's sake. And so we do contentedly hold the tension between joy and sorrow. That tension bridges thanksgiving, prayer, and labor. And so may God enable us to properly consider the past and the present that we labor for him in these days. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.